Let's turn in our Bibles then to Esther. It's before the Psalms, it's before Job in your Old Testaments. It's right by Ezra and Nehemiah. These three books kind of go together in a way, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So we're going to read, to start off, we're going to just read the first nine verses. And then kind of in the middle of the sermon, I'll read the rest of the story so you can keep a bookmark in your Bibles. We'll read half, or basically half now and then half kind of in the, later in the sermon. But before we read scripture, we need to pray and ask God to help us understand it and listen carefully. So let's pray. Lord, again, your word is uh, precious. It's light to our path and a lamp for our feet, and, and we definitely need it in this life. And so as we read um, this portion of the Old Testament this morning, we pray that you would keep us alert to hear, keep us awake to listen, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would go forth even now to help us interpret this word rightly and put it in practice in our own lives as we believe its truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Esther 1, verses 1 through 9, this is God's word. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet, I'm sorry, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So again, we'll pick up in verse 10 here pretty soon. You you guys know that sometimes when uh, movie producers uh, make movies, they they sometimes do different things in the storyline. Sometimes if you watch a movie, there'll be kind of like two stories going on at once. Sometimes, maybe even quite a few times, uh, movies have flashbacks. You know, when the main character was young, it flashes back to when he was a kid. And sometimes uh, movie producers will even get really creative and kind of do flash forwards to when the main character is a bit older. We we kind of are aware of how different movies work with different stories and ways to present them. Now, the Bible uh, has some different ways of telling the story of God's people, too. Of course, big picture, the Bible from, you know, beginning of time in Genesis to the end in, in Revelation. So you got the bookends there. But in between that, there are stories 
kind of like side stories and flashbacks and even flash-forwards in the Bible. It tells the story kind of in different ways. Now, the story of Esther that we're going to look, look into is sort of, from the Old Testament term, kind of a flash-forward in the Old Testament. It's interesting that the book of Esther takes place in the middle of the Old Testament, but it's actually a flash-forward to later in Old Testament times, um, uh, closer to the New Testament times, in fact, than many of the other stories in the Bible. And so this story, like I mentioned, Ezra or Esther goes kind of along with Ezra and Nehemiah, and they happen in the Persian Empire around 480 years before Christ was born. That's just, I'm just kind of a general timeline for you to think about when we look at Esther. Right around 480 BC in the big, huge um, kingdom of Persia. So we just read verses 1 through 9. Let's start, and, and I'm going to do, what, what we're going to do is kind of go through the story, make some comments on it, and then at the end we're going to do some application work and, and see what this, how this fits in for us as Christians today. Now, first of all, if you were paying attention to the reading of these first verses, you could tell that this story starts in a very foreign place with foreign people. If you're accustomed to reading the Old Testament, typically you'll read about Jerusalem or Moses or David or Bethlehem. Now, when you start the first chapter of Esther, you don't hear of any of those things because we're in a different place and even in a different time period to some extent. And so when you read about Susa there um, in in this chapter, that's where, um, in in verse 2, Susa was a citadel or the fortress. That was one of the capital cities of the Persian Empire back then. And the nation it was in was called Elam. Now today, if you would, I don't know, some of your Bibles have a map. You can look at the map later. But Susa and Elam, um, back, or those Places back then are in the Near East now, about by Iran, or in Iran. And this would be 800 miles east of Jerusalem. So this story takes place far outside of the promised land. Now, Elam is the country then, and Susa is a major city, but both are part of the Persian Empire. So that's one thing you really need to know in in Esther's day. The Persian Empire was the great, huge empire back then. You read in the Old Testament about other major empires, like Babylon or Assyria. And in the New Testament, you read about the Roman Empire. In the days of Esther, the Persian Empire was the main world empire. In fact, if you are familiar with the Old Testament stories, you've maybe heard about Cyrus the Great and Darius. They were also rulers in this Persian Empire, like Ahasuerus in our story. And if you like history, you may be interested to know that this huge Persian empire fell to Alexander the Great around 330 BC. Okay, so we're in the Persian empire, and it tells us that that we're in the Persian empire in the days of Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus, um, if you translate that, the Greek version has Xerxes. So if your translation says Xerxes, it's the same thing as Ahasuerus, it's just in a different language. But Ahasuerus ruled over the Persian Empire around 480 B.C. Now, just to put this on the timeline of the Old Testament, David was king about 1,000 B.C. Now we're in a different place with different people, and Ahasuerus is king in Persia around 480 B.C. And Ahasuerus was quite the ruler back then. 
uh, archaeologists have found some different inscriptions about him. And one of them says, the great king, the king of the lands, the king of this great world. He had quite a reputation. And, and the Persian Empire, you know, it kept on spreading back then. And when they would conquer a different nation, they would just kind of absorb that nation or region into its kingdom and take a lot of its wealth. So uh, the Persian Empire, Ahasuerus, was maybe today what we would call a multi-billionaire. I don't know, maybe he would, Ahasuerus was maybe so rich he would make Elon Musk look poor. <laughs> he was super wealthy, as we're going to see. Another thing about this Persian Empire is that it's huge. It was from India to Ethiopia today. Way out east back then to way out west. And if you look on a map, again, you can look at a map later of the Persian Empire around 480 BC. It was around 2,400 miles wide and about 700 miles north and south. That's not quite as big as the United States, but it's up there. And so if you would compare the little tiny nation of Israel to the huge Persian Empire back then, Israel would be something like Rhode Island <laughs> compared to the rest of the United States. So, so really, the, the Persian Empire was huge, massive. Ahasuerus is the king over this huge empire, and he's wealthy. He's on his throne, his castle in Susa, uh, king of the known world back then. And so this is where the story of Esther takes place. That gives you kind of a background that you really need to know to, to understand what's going on in this book. Now, we don't get it to it in chapter 1, but in chapter 2, we're going to learn that there are Jews living around Susa in this Persian empire. Jews like Esther and Mordecai, who are displaced from their homeland of Israel because the Persian Empire kind of absorbed it and took some of them back to the capital. But we'll get that into that more next week. Okay, well, let's, let's look at some more of the details of this guy, this King Ahasuerus' reign. So in verse 4, it talks about how he showed off the riches of his glory and splendor to a lot of different officials, army leaders, and servants. So this is a huge party, and, and Ahasuerus invited a whole bunch of different military commanders and officials from his huge kingdom. So you can imagine that big of a kingdom, if you'd invite a whole bunch of leaders, it's going to be a big party. In fact, um, one ancient Greek author, I think it was Herodotus, he wrote a lot about the Persian Empire, or at least some things about it, and he said it was common for Persian parties to have 15,000 people at them. Big nation, big party from a rich king. And, and one thing that's interesting, if you read through this, um, the king who, whose fortress is in Susa, he doesn't hold anything back in this party. It was what we would call a big-budget, high-cost party. Spare no expense. We're going to throw the biggest feast in history. And it was a long party. It says here it was, it was um, uh, six months, 180 days. Around six months. Now, when it says that, it's interesting. That's in verse 4, by the way. If you pause a moment, so you can imagine a big party in a big kingdom. That's maybe something you can imagine a little bit of. But six months. Don't these people have jobs? <laughs> I mean, don't military commanders have to get back to their armies? So what do we do with that? Of course, if you're a critic of Scripture, you'll say, well, it's not true anyway. But there's a lot of different expl um, explanations here. It could be that it was kind of an exaggeration for effect, a hyperbole. 
we use this kind of language a lot. If something is very heavy, if you're going to move your microwave or something, that old one, you say, this thing weighs a ton. Well, no, it doesn't, but you're speaking an exaggeration. So this could be hyperbole. Back then, it was common to say this party lasted a half of a year, which means it was just a really long party. Or it could be that the, the party itself wasn't necessarily six months, but it kind of was an ongoing on and off party for six months, and people would come at different times to this party. <clears throat> Excuse me, something like that. So he has this huge party showing off all of his riches for six months, whatever. And after that, it says in verse 5, he had another uh, party for seven days around his palace area. So there's like a, a party to cap off the end of the party, to, to, you know, a big bang maybe at the end of the party. And this one, it says, was in his huge courtyard. Verse 5 talks about the garden of the king's palace. Now, in our context, when you guys, when I think of a, a garden, you think of the garden you have in your backyard. Maybe you have a big one that we can't wait to plant when it gets nicer. But back then in Persia, this garden actually was one of um, uh, those huge gardens, like a botanical garden plus a zoo, plus a lot of different um, uh, um, statues and things in it. In fact, um, some uh, archaeologists said that there was gardens back then so big that, that you could like go f- hunting in them. <laughs> it's like a, a zoo almost. In fact, the Persians called these gardens paradida, and that's the word we get our word paradise from. So these were this, these exotic gardens. And it would make sense because Susa, if you look on the map around Iran, that was very hot in the summer. So King Ahasuerus was so wealthy, he could make this beautiful botanical garden slash zoo where there's beautiful trees and plants, exotic ones from different countries, and people could go there for refreshment from the hot sun. So that's where the last part of this party takes place in his wonderful garden. And then it says that in the end of verse 9, Queen Vashti, that's uh, Ahasuerus' wife, also gave a feast for the woman in the palace that belonged to the king. Now, typically, uh, the the commentaries say that uh, women back then would, queens would join in the party with their husbands, typically. So we're not sure, but this could kind of show a crack in the kingdom because she threw her own party. We're not sure. But, but let, we'll read verse 10 and beyond in a minute. But we, we kind of get a description here also. I'm not going to go through all of the different things in verses 6 and 7. But if you read those, it describes the palace um, of Ahasuerus in an, an amazing way. I mean, one thing that it says there, it says that his floors were made of mosaic tiles from precious jewels from different countries. You know, can you picture a mosaic floor with the most expensive jewels it was made from? And one other thing to note here, in verse 7 and 8, basically, wine was flowing like a river. <laughs> they were drinking out of his expensive goblets. No, no two were the same. They were probably handcrafted from, from gold. And it says in verse 8, drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. If you have an NIV, it, it translates it a little better. It says there were no restrictions on the drinking or something like that. Or the New Living Translation says, no limits to drinking. So the king's order in this party for all these different people was drink as much as you want. We won't cut you off. The bar never closes. And that's why one commentary said, most Persian banquets were something like an ancient keg party. (laughs) That's kind of what's going on here. So that's the setting. 
I mean, it's quite the picture of wealth and festivities in a huge ancient Near East empire. Lifestyle of the rich and famous, throwing one of the biggest bashes in history, overflowing with wealth and extravagance. But on the other hand, there should be a couple little red flags. I I already mentioned that Vashti, the queen, wasn't at that party. She threw her own. That could be a little red flag. But also it should be a red flag for us when a pagan king throws this big party and alcohol is flowing like a river. You know that typically nothing good comes from something like that. So let's see what happens next. We'll read the rest of the chapter, starting at verse 10. Again, God's word. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithot, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shitar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has the queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So that's the, the story uh, that we'll look at for the rest of the sermon. Okay, so we're still in the context of this huge party that King Ahasuerus is throwing. And it's on the, the last day of this huge party. Okay, so they've been partying for a long time. And um, was King Ahasuerus sober or drunk? Quite, or drunk at least. <laughs> I don't know quite, but it says his heart was merry with wine. And that means he was happy because he had been drinking. <laughs> so that's something to note. 
the, the net translation said he was feeling the effects of wine. And he tells his eunuchs, which are his servants, to bring out his wife and parade her in front of all these other men who had been drinking. Now, there's a technical word for that. It starts with a V. It's called voyeurism. He's showing off his wealth, and he wants to show off his woman. Now, it's kind of like she's his trophy that he wants to show off in front of all these other drunk people that were drinking with him at the party. He wants to show off his wealth and his woman. Now, it says um, in verse 11, it says, To bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. We don't know for sure, but some old Jewish commentaries say, wearing only her crown. (laughs) We don't know about that. But she was a beautiful woman. It says in verse 11, um, she was, you know, there's beautiful, there are beautiful people in the Bible, like Sarah, Bathsheba, the woman of Song of Solomon. Vashti is one of those beautiful women. Now, she, of course, is not happy with this, which is a proper response. Verse 12 says she refused to come at the king's command. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. It doesn't seem wise to her to be paraded out in front of a whole bunch of people, including men who have been drinking too much for too long. In fact, typically, kings would do this. Again, it's not, not a good thing, but kings would do this to their concubines or servants. They, they would you know, put them on display. So Vashti is pretty brave and gutsy in saying no to the king. And the king, king who drank too much is acting foolishly, right? It's a foolish thing for him to, to ask Vashti to parade herself in front of a whole bunch of people who had been drinking too long. But then the king also gets angry, if you notice that. The end of verse 12, and it doesn't say he was just kind of a little bit upset. It says his anger, or the king became enraged. He was like in rage mode, and his anger was burning within him. So it's repeated twice. She disobeyed, now he's angry. One moment he's kind of a happy drunk, and the next moment he's an angry drunk, like fighting mad angry. Now I already mentioned Herodotus, an ancient Greek historian, you know, from long ago, when he was writing about Ahasuerus, he said that Ahasuerus was an impatient, hot-tempered monarch with a wandering eye for women. That fits the story, doesn't it? And someone else, uh, a modern-day commentary, wrote this, a drunk king is not the kind of person you want to anger, and a drunk and angry king is not the type of person you would want to face as your judge as Vashti and the whole Persian Empire would soon discover. So you can see that drinking and anger and folly here, they're, they're wrapped up together. Okay, so we read the story. You guys know how it goes. In verse 13 and on, he, he, talks to his, he, he gets his seven wise men to come and talk to him. And they have these funny names to us because they're Persian names from long ago, so they don't sound normal to us. They did probably back then. But he calls the wise men there who had spent a lot of time with him. They were like his cabinet, his advisors. And he says, what should I do? What does, what does the law say if a queen disobeys the king, in other words? Um, that's kind of broken up. You know, here, the, if you read the ESV, it's a little bit clunky. But that's verse uh, 15. According to the law, what's to be done to Queen Vashti because she's not obeyed me? That's his question to his advisors. Now this, it even kind of seems foolish because um, he probably could have dealt with this a better way. We don't know. 
But one of the advisors, probably the spokesman, whose name was Memukan, he says, basically, the wrong that the queen has done in disobeying your command, that word is going to spread through the whole kingdom, and then all the women of the kingdom are going to disobey their husbands like this, and that's something we can't have. <laughs> that's kind of a summary of what Memukan said. So, put Vashti out, put her away, and she actually is out of the whole story after this. Um, and again, some Jewish commentaries from long ago, we don't know if this is true, but some say that Vashti was put to death. We don't know, but that's what some legend says. But then, you know, choose another queen in her place. And then send this decree over all Persia to keep the women in their place. And so that was kind of Memukin's advice. It's pretty straightforward. And everyone agreed. Uh, in verse 21, if you look at that, his other cabinet members who were there, uh, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. It's a good idea, he said. But let's stop here and think, what do you guys think about that decree? Is that wise or foolish? To get rid of Vashti, choose another queen, and send out an edict so that women won't do this all over the place. Well, it seems more foolish to send a wife away who won't listen to a disgusting command. And from our angle, it's, it's even kind of abusive, I think. It is abuse to command your wife to do something like this. It's disgusting, misogynistic. But King Vashti, I'm sorry, um, King Ahasuerus doesn't see that. He's, he's, he's not thinking well. He's not uh, sober. And so what, that's what happens. The king sends letters to all the provinces of Persia in all the different languages of the land, which would be many, so they could read it in their own language. Aramaic was the official language, but since they took on other countries as they expanded, there were different languages. And the decree was, in verse 22, so that men would be the ruler of their own home and speak according to the language of his people, meaning possibly the man would decide what language was spoken in the home. That last verse is tough, but it means something like that. All right. So that's the, the start of the story of Esther. What's some feedback? That's an interesting story, right? If you haven't read this for a while, again, it kind of captures your attention because you're like, wow, this is, this is a real story. This is interesting. Now, I would like some, you know, Send me an email or talk to me later if you have some more feedback. But I was thinking of a couple different things just for this first chapter as I was studying it this week. When I was reading it, especially King Ahasuerus' words and actions, I couldn't help but think of some Proverbs. Um, we can use King Ahasuerus, I think, to show that many of the Proverbs are true. For example, let me, you know... Sometimes when you read a proverb in the Bible, I mean, a biblical proverb, you know right away what it means. You have an example for it. King Ahasuerus is an example for a lot of different proverbs. Let me give you an example before I talk about Ahasuerus a minute. You know, one example would be in Proverbs 10, it says, those who ignore correction will go astray. What does that mean in real, like, what does that mean in real life? Well, let's say your neighbor's kids never listen to their, or your neighbor's kid never listened to her parents. She never, you know, 
listen to their correction. And she ended up hanging around with the wrong crowd. She got into drugs. She's now in the detox center because she overdosed. That proves the proverb true. Those who ignore correction will go astray. King Ahasuerus is, proves a lot of the proverbs are true. I, I kind of have a longer list here. I'll give you a summary. Pride. King Ahasuerus was proud and arrogant and showing off all of his stuff, including how he tried to show off his wife. Proverbs 13 says, pride leads to conflict. We're going to see how that comes true in the story. And you know the proverb, pride goes before destruction. So King Ahasuerus and pride go together, and you can read about that in the Proverbs. Drunkenness. You know what the proverb says about drunkenness? Nothing, nothing good, right? Proverbs 20 says, Wine produces mockers, alcohol leads to brawls. Those led astray by drink cannot be wise. Or Proverbs 31 says, It's not good for kings to guzzle wine. Rulers should not crave alcohol. Because alcohol leads, drunkenness leads to all kinds of problems. And we're going to see that in, in this kingdom. Anger. Remember, uh, he was drunk, foolish, and angry. Proverbs 29 says, A hot-tempered person commits all kinds of sin. Yeah, we're going to see that in the story too. Or Proverbs 20 says, The king's fury is like a lion's roar. To rouse his anger is to risk your life. Yeah, we're going to see that too. How about folly, foolishness? Proverbs 14 says, short-tempered people do foolish things. Foolishness and anger are tied together. We see that in, in King Ahasuerus' life. Or Proverbs 17 says, it's safer to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than to confront a fool caught in his foolishness. So there's some more examples. You can think of more, but do you see what I mean? When you read about King Ahasuerus' account, you can't help but think of some Proverbs and how it proves the Proverbs true. So you can think about that on your own and kind of meditate on that. But I want to just end by talking about, um, just briefly, talking about a bigger picture of the story. Um, we're going to get more in the coming weeks. Obviously, I'm not going to do it all in the first sermon because we've got more work to do here. But one thing to think about as we as we'll, you know, look forward to more, the world that Esther lived in, we'll get to Esther next week, the world that Esther lived in back then is very close to the world that we live in now. Think about that. The world that Esther and the Jews lived in back then in Persia by Susa is like the world we live in now. They were living under a secular government as a minority people. They were living in a time when it seemed like the rich and powerful ran the show. They were living in a foreign country far from their homes in the promised land. They were living in a time when God wasn't actively doing miracles like he did in the Exodus and the wilderness and during the kingdom years. You're not going to read of any miracles in the story of Esther. And they were living in such a way and time that they had to trust God even when they didn't clearly see his hand at work in the day-to-day life details. And so they had to rely on God's promises during the dark time, promise that he would someday send that Messiah to bring light and life to the world. So so you see some parallels? 
we can understand some of those things. And we'll get to this, like I said. We wrestle with how to live in such a world as God's people today. We're not in our true homeland. We're exiled. We're, we're, we're pilgrims waiting to be home in the new creation, heaven. But until then, we're living as a minority under a secular government. And we don't really see God's hand clearly at work like Moses or David did. We, we just don't see that in, in this time period. And we too have to trust that God is in control and directing all events according to his own plan and providence. We have to live by faith and believe God's promise that Jesus will come a second time again to bring full redemption and world renewal. You see what I mean? There's some parallels between their lives back then under a secular government and our lives now. And so those are some things that we also have to think about. We can't always see God specifically working a miracle before us but we still trust that God is in control, working, as it were, behind the scenes. Esther's story will teach us that and strengthen our faith in God's providence, even when we can't understand his ways. That's very helpful for us. And through Esther, we we pray that God will teach us to trust his promise. Even on those days where we we can't make any sense of anything, we we have to trust God's promise that, that He's in control, that all things work together for the good of those who love him, and that one day Jesus will come again and make all things right. So we walk by faith now as we think about how God works behind the scenes, providentially governing and directing and ordering all things according to his will. So we trust that God is at work, even when we can't always see him. Those are the kinds of things we'll be seeing in the story of Esther, and those are very helpful for our lives today in a parallel situation. So that's an introduction to this ancient story. And we pray then, again, as we go through this story, pray on your own, and we'll pray that God helps us through this story to trust in him even when we can't trace his ways or understand what's going on around us. And we pray then, ultimately, that this story helps us walk by faith and not by sight, knowing and believing that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Let's pray.